and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. You might have heard of the city in the desert that's being built in Saudi Arabia. It's the idea of the Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Salman. It's called The Line, and it is, in theory, a city for the greater good, a revolution in urban living. It will be unlike any city you've seen before. But could the perfect city ever really exist, and what would it look like anyway? With me to chat about that is Matthew Blunderfield, who teaches architecture at the Royal College of Art, and he's the host of the podcast Scaffold. Welcome to The Bunker, Matthew. Hi, Raj. Thanks for having me. What would the perfect city look like for you? It's a big question, as a, and it could take you know hours to answer, but have it, a go. Yeah, it certainly is a big question, and I don't know if there is such a thing or if there is a concise answer, but um, I was reminded of Thomas More, who you know, 500 years ago, was writing about utopia, this self-contained world set on an island in which its inhabitants share property and work and seek human happiness. And I think Moore's vision of utopia, it's inspired ideal cities of the Renaissance, the Garden City Movement, Corbusier's modernist City of Tomorrow, as well as the Israeli kibbutzim and the hippie communes of the 1970s. And so, at the same time, though, I think Moore was aware of the folly of pursuing a perfect city. I mean, he coined the word utopia from the Greek utopos, which means no place or nowhere. But it was obviously a pun, and he was aware of that, because it's almost identical to the Greek word utopos, which means a good place. So, at the very heart of the word, it's this vital question, can a perfect world ever be realized? And... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, I think the answer maybe is kind of. Um, I know it's not a satisfying one, but to me, I think to a lot of people, perfection is a pernicious idea, um, especially when it comes to urban planning, because it suggests what would likely be an excessive need for control or regulation, a kind of smoothing over and stamping out of the less than perfect. So, with that in mind, maybe the perfect city is something more like a contingent city, um, a city shaped and altered by its context and in a perpetual state of flux, which is to say the perfect city may be one that's formed by the social life and ecology that it in turn sustains. So what that implies is that it's actually quite hard for urban planners and architects to build the perfect city because it has to come from the people themselves rather than being, if you like, a vision being imposed. Would you say that's right? Yeah, I mean, I broadly agree with that. Cities are accumulations of experience over time with many kind of actors, many influences at play. Um, so I think... This idea of a top-down model of a city is what's inherently problematic. So that's very much the model, though, that we are seeing in the line. Let's get down to the specifics a bit rather than the abstracts. What does Mohammed bin Salman hope this city will look like? If you go on the line website, it's just extraordinary. Clearly, they're almost having trouble doing a CGI mock-up because it's so strange to us. But tell us what it looks like, where people live, what they do. So the line is part of a broader development scheme called NEAM, which is arguably the most dramatic project in the world of architecture and construction right now. Um, and the line itself is a planned structure to house 9 million people uh, that will run straight for 170 kilometers, which is a, a roughly 
100 miles, projecting at one end into the Red Sea, but it'll only be 200 meters wide, flanked on either side by 500 meter high walls of building and made out of mirrored glass. Um, So if you think of a tower taller than the Empire State Building extruded from Birmingham to Leeds and then doubled, that's what the line is. Um, That just blows my mind because I can't imagine not feeling intensely claustrophobic in a space 200 meters wide. So how are they going to overcome that? I mean, that's that's probably the biggest question, the environmental question. How does this work uh, as a space that's comfortable and habitable for people, but also uh, how does this work as a development that acknowledges its context and especially the natural context of the desert that it's being built in? I mean, there's a lot of confusion and criticism around what it means to erect a 500-meter-tall wall in the middle of a desert, blocking off migration routes for wildlife um, impacting the desert ecosystem. So, yeah, I I don't know. <laughs> you mentioned Thomas More just now. And let me quote you something from Utopia, which I think is quite interesting in the context of the line. All men live in full view so that all are obliged both to perform their ordinary task and to employ themselves well in their spare hours. And this strikes me as very interesting in the context of Saudi Arabia, because this city is going to be in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is by no means a liberal state. It is an autocratic regime that's funded essentially by by oil, although, of course, the aim of Mohammed bin Salman is to is to create something that is powered by renewables rather than oil, which uh, I suppose makes sense in the long term. But when all men live in full view, in the world that we live in now, where it is possible to track and monitor our movements so much. What does that mean for the kind of city that the line will be? So it's been it's been described as a smart city, which is an urban area that uses advanced technologies, data, and connectivity to enhance the quality of life for its residents, um, improve sustainability, optimize the efficiency of various services and infrastructure. I mean, I studied architecture in Toronto before moving to London. And Toronto had its own version of a smart city in development called Keyside, which was led by a sister company to Google called Sidewalk Labs. And there was a lot of controversy around that project. um, And it never went ahead for various reasons, including concerns over privacy, lack of public input, uncertainties regarding data control, economic viability and political challenges as well. But I think this question of privacy is key to this broader ambition to develop smart cities in the future. And I mean, what's most interesting to me about the line as an example of a smart city is where this overlap of technological solutions, data-driven solutions and AI, um, the overlap of that with the physical infrastructure of the place. So notably in the line, All the things you'd ever need in a city are only a five-minute walk away. And there are no cars, and there are no streets. And I think with that compression of access, and with that subtraction of the street itself, comes a real lack of space to demonstrate or express oneself freely, while at the same time, you are still intensely observed and surveilled. And so to me, this really paints a dystopian picture. 
Yeah, I mean, it won't be possible to be LBTGQ in in the line, will it? Yeah, I think it won't be possible to be a lot of things in an environment like that. So you don't think that the line will ever be built? Why not? Well, looking at the website of the line, there's a lot of promotional material that's highlighting the fact that it is under construction right now. And the question for me is, well, if it's going to be built, at what cost? And there's clearly a great moral cost involved here. So aside from the the fact that it's being led by an oppressive regime and that any form of difference will be hard to sustain in a city like that, there's at least 20,000 members of the Huaytate tribe who have spanned Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and the Sinai Peninsula for generations, and they now face eviction due to the project and its construction with no information about where they will live in the future. So there's a huge risk of displacement to this um, minority group in Saudi Arabia. And it was recently reported that three members of of the Huayte tribe have been arrested for protesting against the forced eviction and uh, have been sentenced to death, actually. This was reported in The Guardian late last year. And another protester from that tribe was actually shot dead by security forces in 2020. So uh, there's an extreme kind of underlying violence that is forming the foundation for the establishment of this project, which itself suggests that um, it'll frame Saudi Arabia more as a global pariah than any kind of ambitious uh, future-facing society. Although this is familiar, isn't it, from big city redevelopments in the past, their tendency has usually been to, when you have a vision for a perfect city, I know I'm thinking of, say, Houseman in the 19th century in Paris, for example, you drive out the poor people that you don't want there anymore. And maybe you help them a bit more and compensate them a bit more, give them somewhere else to live. Maybe you don't. You know, you saw it with uh, slum clearance as well in, in uh, the 20th century in Britain. When you're building this, you have to move people. So in a sense, that's in a long tradition, isn't it? Absolutely. But I mean, traditions change and society changes. And I think the kind of oppressive forces that shape the cities of the past, I don't know if we can countenance that <laughs> moving no, forward. No, I'm not, I'm not suggesting you can. I, I don't imagine this tribe would be very welcome in uh, this new surveillance city, would it? And I think, I mean, I touched on it briefly before. I kind of want to cycle back to another reason I don't think, and many people don't think, um, it's tenable as a project now. And that is the environmental implications of erecting what's effectively a 500-meter-tall reflective wall across this landscape. Yes, it's in a desert. Uh, But deserts are not barren. (laughs) Deserts are diverse ecosystems with their own biodiversity. And you can think of the hyenas, the camels, the leopards, the ants, the beetles, the termites, the mantids, the moths, the locusts, the date palms, the jan trees, the acacias and jasmine flowers. I mean, what happens when you set up this kind of barrier in a natural habitat? I think it's going to cause all kinds of havoc for the environment. And you're also building it in a place which is bound to become hotter, I would have thought, given the direction of the climate emergency, which is going to have extra challenges, isn't it? Because the whole point of this is it's powered by renewables, but you're still going to have to use enormous amounts of energy keeping it cool, surely. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not the best example of designing with nature. In fact, it's kind of oppositional to its landscape and defensive for that reason. 
And I think what it frames architecture's relationship with landscape is one of defense in a way, one of opposition. I mean, it's funny that this program's called The Bunker. We're <laughs> underground right now. And to me, it reminds me of a kind of prepper culture in a way, that the future is something that's a little bit scarier, something to prepare for and maybe defend against. And for architecture to take a similar mentality, but maybe even the more extreme, means that we're designing spaceships instead of buildings. We're designing environments that accept that we can't live on the planet anymore, given the ecological crisis that we're facing. And I don't think we're there yet. I think there are, are alternatives or ways of designing um, with the environment in mind uh, and designing symbiotically with the place instead of against it. Let's talk about crime and the cities, because for many people, I think the perfect city would be one that is basically without crime. It's one where they feel safe. And you see in San Francisco at the moment a feeling that in that city, the crime is spinning out of control and people no longer feel safe there. But are there ways to try to make a city safer that don't involve the kind of extreme surveillance that the line does? I mean, the answer is, of course. <laughs> it's a broader question about policing that we probably don't have time to get into. But in a kind of broad brushstroke response to the question, we could think of how law enforcement works. And is it a question of top down or bottom up? Can communities police themselves or do they need an authoritarian kind of big brother looming over them? And so... I mean, that's another question I had about the line in a way. How do communities form organically in a city like this? Uh, how does life unfold in a way that um, individuals and collectives can dictate for themselves versus a kind of predetermined state of being that's uh, unfurled for them? And so, yeah, when it comes to the question of crime and policing, I mean, quite clearly, this is going to be a surveillance state, a surveillance city which in many ways will lead to a more oppressive environment, more inequality, and probably ironically more, more, more crime moving forward. Which cities for you are getting it right at the moment? Obviously nowhere is going to be perfect as we discussed. That's just an aim, not a, not a realistic uh, one either. But which cities are trying and succeeding in making themselves better? Oh, it's such a tough question because I think as an architect, I have a habit of falling in love with any city I look at. Maybe we could focus on London just because we're here. Um, and we could talk a bit about what works and what doesn't about it. So, I mean, having not been from here originally, I feel like you notice certain things um, that other people don't when you first move in. And for me, London is an intensely surveilled city. There are obviously cameras everywhere. And there's also a kind of paranoia around crime and violence that you experience in places as banal as the tube, right? Uh, if you see something, say it. <laughs> see it, say it. Sorted. <laughs> exactly. And so I think when I first moved here, I really felt that anxiety. And also in the infrastructure around anti-terrorism, uh, which is so visible and physical in the public realm. 
Yeah, it, I think that really started in 2005 with the attacks then. Before that, it just wasn't so much of an issue. And after that, it did begin to change and you were very conscious of it. And then, of course, you had COVID, which created other kind of interesting divisions in the city and the need to keep apart. And, mm -hmm. and yeah, feeling during COVID that there were new ways of being surveilled as well. Yeah, and I mean... Uh, there are obviously silver linings to that experience that cities around the world have have borne witness to, the fact that public space is now coming into question and that where once we parked our cars, we're now um, putting out furniture and spilling out into the street with commercial activity and um, leisure and you know, a new form of public life. So there's a kind of rediscovery of the spaces between buildings that COVID has um, kind of made us aware of. But I mean, other things I love about London are the fact um, it has such a robust transit system. There's an abundance of public parks and gardens and such a diversity in terms of the people that live here. I think in, one of the things about London, which is changing as well, is the fact that spaces that used to be public and I'm thinking especially of King's Cross and Pancras, since they were redeveloped and made ostensibly safer, well, I mean, before King's Cross was a red light district and it wasn't always somewhere where you felt very safe, so fair enough. But that space now is almost all private mm -hmm. and you don't have a right to be there. It's actually patrolled by security guards who try to minimise their presence, but they're always there. Is that something that you see in other cities as well, not just London? Or is it a London thing? No, it's absolutely an international thing. I mean, they're referred to as POPs, privately owned public spaces. And yes, they are subtle. I mean, ostensibly anyone is welcome. But there is always this threat of censoring or of um, a kind of authoritarianism uh, that lurks in the shadows, as you're suggesting, with the way that security has a presence in these environments. And I think for now, the effects aren't yet tangible because it's a slow creep. <laughs> but at the same time, just knowing that um, these privately owned spaces don't in fact belong to us and that there is a certain you know, script for how to behave in them, I think it does have subtle but eventually very influential impacts on the way we behave in public life, the kind of expressions we feel we can make in the public realm. And so, yeah, I think ultimately it's, um, as I said before, pernicious and oppressive. Do we need to build high? Because the line, for example, is a very thin, very high city. When Ken Livingstone was mayor of London, his vision of the centre of London, or certainly the uh, city and Canary Wharf, of course, was a much higher city dominated by skyscrapers. Is that changing or is it still the only way that we can actually house all the people that we need to house in modern cities? No, I mean, I think somehow we always forget about the middle ground, maybe because it's less bombastic or spectacular, but it's not just terraced houses or skyscrapers. There is a mid-rise architecture that at one point had a real currency in the shape of London and the development of London as a metropolis. I mean, the mansion block is a really quintessential London typology that took shape in the 1850s, and it's enjoying a kind of revival now contemporary social housing projects. I was, um, you know, in addition to being a producer at the Architecture Foundation and teaching at the RCA, I'm an architectural photographer as well and contributed to a book um, that's just come out from Mac 
called At Home in London, The Mansion Block. And this is a totally shameless self-promotion, but at the same time, it's part of this conversation about mid-rise architecture or mid-scale architecture and really how architecture itself um, plays a role in shaping the city. I mean, we think of cities taking shape through this kind of grand urban visioning, this kind of top-down master plan. But in fact, every building has a role to play in the shape of the city. And I think this kind of mid-scale architecture uh, is fundamental to defining streets and sidewalks and to shaping public spaces as well. Yeah, I mean, certainly since Grenfell, I think there's been a turn against that. And also with the realization that leasehold isn't always a great way to buy property, has put a lot of people off flats. So uh, there's a long way to go, I think, on this one. But um, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, It's a fascinating discussion. And will you visit the line if you get the chance? Or is it just Saudi a place that's, frankly, somewhere you'd rather not go? I think, of course, I would visit it. I think uh, it's important to be curious about these things and skeptical and to kind of block it out entirely um, would probably be to miss the deeper, more concerning parts of this project as well. So yes, I, I would go if I could. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Roz. If you enjoy The Bunker, why not back us on Patreon? Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Roz Taylor, and thanks for listening. The Bunker was written and presented by Roz Taylor. The producer was Liam Tate, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>